You're listening to Garden Futurist. I'm Sarah Beck with Pacific Horticulture. Today, I'm talking with Kim Sorvig, who is Research Associate Professor at University of New Mexico and a George Pearl Fellow which is an honor given to professionals whose work encourages discourse and positive change in architecture, planning, and historic preservation. Kim, it's a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. This is a very timely topic. With a severe drought recently declared for many areas of California, 55% of the Pacific Northwest region I just saw is in drought conditions. And of course, the devastating wildfire season we experienced last year in Oregon and California. You have been critical of FireWise codes focused purely on clearance and defensible space. Can you share a few of your critical points on why these single strategy practices are misinformed? Yeah, sure. I don't want anybody to get the idea that I think it's not a serious issue. And not all fire prevention things are created equal, nor are all of them bad. But particularly the idea that we should clear as much vegetation as possible around each house in a forest in order supposedly to prevent forest fires is what I'm concerned with. We have people, and I've been one of them, for a summer job, I was a forest firefighter long time ago. We have people that are making heroic efforts to save houses that have been built in places that are unsafe or in ways that are unsafe, but clearance is not the answer to it. And in fact, I've asserted several places that it's actually counterproductive and helps create some of the problems that it is supposed to prevent. The thing I think is important is to understand what's usually meant by clearance. It's often called fuel modification, which is a way of obscuring the truth of what's going on, I think. Clearance usually means a requirement under law to remove 80% of the vegetation in an area of 30 to 100 feet around your entire house. And it can be applied to outbuildings as well in some places. It also means in many cases that your road has to be paved, which in the areas we're talking about are usually rural driveways, has to be paved, has to be widened to accommodate urban-style large fire trucks, and then in addition, 10 feet on either side of the road has to be cleared of vegetation. If you do the math for a 2,500-square-foot house and a quarter-mile-long driveway, which are fairly average, you're clearing about two acres in addition to the area of the pavement and the area of the house itself. So two additional acres per property. That adds up to a huge sacrifice and a huge cost for the homeowner. It adds up to a ton of green waste, more than a ton, four tons, I think, is about average, which is a cost to the jurisdiction because of having to pay for it to be dumped or composted or whatever. Oh, that's interesting. That's a hidden cost. Yes. And of course, then there is the whole question of the ecosystem being perforated, as one person called it, by cutting holes in the forest. And that's really where you get into the counterproductive part of it, is that by removing so much vegetative cover, you actually change the conditions 
in the direction of more fire rather than less. You've told me that massive clearing promotes desertification. It made me think about ecological gardening basics that our Pacific horticulture audience is familiar with and how incongruous the clearing seems. I'm wondering if you could unpack this a bit. I've actually written a book called Sustainable Landscape Construction. One of the conclusions that my co-author and I came to in that is that you should really be saving virtually every tree you possibly can especially now that climate change is being taken seriously. Instead, when you remove the canopy of forest cover or even the shrub cover over a large area, it deprives the soil of organic nutrients, which every gardener knows is important. It increases the soil temperature, which can be good for a few plants and a lot of insects, but not generally for plants that are adapted to the old regime. Soil erodes more easily, gets dried out, and that increases not only the erosion, but the propensity for water to run off because the soil's been baked and it can't absorb the water. Eventually, there's a change in microclimate, at least, and it changes in the direction we don't want it to change. It changes towards more drought. New Mexico, where I am, is the entire state is in extreme drought at this point, which is a hellish classification, literally. So when you do this vegetation removal over a large area, you're actually increasing the root cause condition of wildfire. You wrote an article for Landscape Architecture magazine called Crying Fire in a Crowded Landscape. Do Firewise Initiatives Ward Off or Help Spark catastrophic wildfires. In the article, you say, and this is a quote, scientists are only beginning to quantify these clearing to drought to fire relationships, but that is no excuse for ignoring the likelihood that clearing to prevent fire is like damming rivers to prevent floods. Processes like flooding and fire are inevitable. And although a prevention strategy may work in some cases, it may actually worsen the problem. Can you tell me more about this letting go of the idea of preventing wildfires? One of the difficulties that we're up against is that we can't prevent wildfires. There are whole ecosystems and plant communities that are fire adapted. In order to set seed or to release their seeds onto the ground, in order for the ground to be in the right chemical condition, it varies with different plants, they have to undergo fire. And some of them, the parent plant is burned up entirely, leaving room for the seeds to germinate without competition. In other cases, like redwoods, the bark on the tree is so thick that it doesn't burn up enough to harm the tree. So there are various fire adaptation strategies that plants have. And if you're living in the middle of a chaparral that has to burn in order to keep itself alive, it's going to burn. And the idea that we think we can come in and build in those areas and not figure out a way to coexist with them is one of the many roots of this problem. You seem to be in total disagreement with Smokey the Bear, I noticed. <laughs> well, a lot of people are having second thoughts about poor old Smokey the Bear. 
I remember playing with my dad. One of my favorite games was I got to be Smokey the Bear and my dad would rescue me out of the tree. Yeah. So I'm not <laughs> totally against him, but the the message of fire suppression has certainly been damaging. And that's been discussed a lot, why we have such thick forests full of flammable fuels. And that's one of the directions I think we have to turn is to solving those problems rather than doing these band-aid solutions around individual houses. You're listening to Garden Futurist. We'll be right back. Do you love the freedom of riding a bicycle as much as I do? And you've decided it's time to say goodbye to your used vehicle. You can donate that car to Pacific Horticulture. You'll not only benefit yourself with a tax-deductible donation, but you will also help us share more inspiring stories of garden futurists. Call us at 855-500-7433, and we will tow your vehicle at no cost to you. Birakino is a not-too-big, not-too-small Santa Cruz-based winery. Birakino produces minimal intervention, maximal pleasure-inducing wines from a wide array of responsibly farmed vineyards including many planted between the late 19th century and the early disco era. We strive to produce wines which defy rather than exert gravity, which revitalize and revive, and which authentically express the character of the sites from which they derive. Go to birakino.com and enter the code PH at checkout to receive a special 10% discount. So um, you're talking about some of that fuel buildup having to do with making fires more intense and uncontrollable. Yeah, and also making them run up the trunks of small trees and get into the canopies of the major forest trees, at which point they are the scariest thing you'll ever see if you're anywhere close to them. They also throw firebrands I believe the last I read was somebody was saying the the average was half a mile ahead of the fire. So clearing is not going to do a darn thing for those firebrands. That's super scary. I think we have experienced some frightening moments in the last couple of years. And you're absolutely right. It's I think it's time for us to look at some new methodology. So we're futurists here at Garden Futurist. Even if we have to look far beyond the tools we currently have. What are the possible solutions? Are there some good answers to this? Well, actually, I don't think we have to look so far into the future in the sense of what is technically available today. The question of whether people will do it and whether the policymakers will require it is really where the future comes into it. Just wanted to say one thing about the clearing If it actually worked, it might be a sacrifice that we were all willing to make. The problem is it doesn't. I documented in that same article that you mentioned several houses in San Diego that were owned by landscape architects. They were knowledgeable about the codes. They were compliant with the codes at a cost of tens of thousands of dollars in one case. And both of their houses burned to the ground. So 
clearing is not enough. There are forest health initiatives of various kinds, grazing, selective thinning, preferably by community forestry so that the small wood being taken out is put to some use, but also very carefully returning as much of the nutrients of the thinnings to the soil as you possibly can, because otherwise you're depleting the soil and that risks going towards desertification. Other than building materials, are there any ideas about planting design that could be really fire appropriate? Are there some creative and interesting ways for us to be thinking about the actual plants surrounding a house? Yeah, definitely. The first one is not to think the way that Firewise tends to think, which, apart from all its other sins, is pushing us back towards a suburban lawn and lollipop kind of landscape of the 50s. You don't love that aesthetic? Is that what you're saying? <laughs> yeah, that, that's, that's out of fashion. So I don't think it's, it's too dangerous that people are going to uh, embrace that warmly. But that is the net result. The first thing that these clearance-focused policies want to do is to get you back to a bluegrass lawn and a few trees that are so isolated that if one burns, the other ones won't catch fire. That's not a planting design anybody wants. My favorite idea about this actually is from Japan and from traditional Japanese gardens. If you look carefully at a cross-section through the house and the Japanese garden outside, there's this wonderful hierarchical transition that goes from enclosed on all six sides where you're indoors to enclosed on three sides, which is called an engawa. We might call it a portal in Spanish-speaking parts of the United States. It's a big porch that runs along the side of the building and is open to the elements. When you first step off of the engawa, you generally step onto paving in a traditional Japanese design, and that extends for a certain ways. And then you start getting plants, and gradually you get more plants and less stone until you finally merge into the forest or whatever is the most vegetated condition you have on your property. That creates a defensible space like the firefighters want because the paved area is not going to be damaged. And you can work in that area rather than having to specially cut out planting. And I think there's some possibilities for adapting that idea in areas that need to coexist with fire-adapted ecosystems. One of the other problems that directly affects planting design is that many of the policies come with planting lists, you know, acceptable planting lists for fire zones. And all of them are ones that are fire resistant, so-called. Guess what that means? That means non-native and it means heavily irrigation dependent. And so everything that we've been working for in terms of using native plants and reducing the amount of irrigation, which is even more important than the native plant aspect, all of that is being undermined. Do you see new types of decision-making around land use and housing zoning as part of any more resilient future planning for living with wildfire? 
Well, yes and no. I don't have much of a crystal ball on politicians anymore. I kind of give up on that. But there's a number of things that I think I see going on. One of them is actually fairly positive, and that is that people in the younger bracket of people who are buying houses for first the first time or of that age seem to be showing a very distinct preference for living in walkable cities, which means mixed-use development. It means you're close to your work, you can walk to work, you can walk to the grocery store. The physical layout of the city includes infrastructure so you can walk sidewalks and bike paths and, and so on. And that's a huge change, a demographic that is coming into power and I think is drastically changing our whole viewpoint on ecological preservation or conservation. I think they're changing it for the good and they may actually have more practical impact on this whole issue than all of us aging idealists that, you know, the, the ex-hippies who didn't believe in cars and so on. Well, now the kids don't particularly want cars. They don't even care about them. Yeah. They'd much rather walk. They'd much rather ride public transportation or bike or whatever. So that may pull half of the problem out, which is that, as you say, people are moving into these wildfire-prone areas. If people cluster in walkable cities, the problem could go away in a sense. I love what you're saying, though, about folks getting interested in living in denser communities and the idea of possible new construction. And your concept of the Japanese garden is wonderful. It makes me realize that if you had some dense housing in the center of a community, that dense housing could be designed with that very careful <laughs> landscape design as well. Yeah, the sociology is always the difficult part. But I think that if we had a really strong urban planning tradition, which my friends among the planners will probably be annoyed with me, but compared to Europe, for example, planners have no authority here. They can suggest, they can maybe convince the uh, community jurisdiction to enforce a few things. But to actually have something that would centrally plan, for example, you can use parks as fire breaks. Even if you're in a forested area, if you clear a park and put in ball fields and small garden-esque kinds of plantings and so on, which people like in their parks, if you put in wetlands, including the constructed wetlands that can process sewage, all of those will act to stop a wildfire spreading. It's tricky, isn't it? When you think about just trying to communicate science. I mean, I was just in my own mind imagining your community neighborhood controlled burn concept and imagining how you would have Smokey the Bear <laughs> say, only you, only you can have a controlled but complex <laughs> explanation for. <laughs> only you can burn your garden biannually, right? <laughs> it's very catchy. Yeah, exactly. really. Well, it's good to have some fun about these ideas because people get understandably very attached to their environment. 
not only what they actually own, but what surrounds them. People actively choose to live in these wild areas because they're beautiful and they're satisfying, they're restful. There's good evidence that being in contact with nature in any way you can is good for your health. And yet, by doing so, it's kind of the Heisenberg uncertainty effect here coming in. You change what you're observing. You change just by being there, the whole ecosystem. And when that change gets large enough that it results in big wildfires, then there's some real hard decisions to be made. I think the fact that everyone is truly wanting to interface with nature and connect to plants. And we do experience that wildland urban interface. And, you know, it's a benefit to humans, like you say, and and everyone does care. But these are very difficult management conversations. And I, I think a lot of ecologists are really coming to a place where they are saying that there's nothing really unmanaged anymore. We, at least here, you know, we don't, we don't have any spaces that we can really consider protected wildland completely hands off, right? That's debatable in a lot of different ways. To some degree, I think that mixes together places that are slightly touched by pollution or something that blows in from 300 miles away with places where we are actively cutting and managing and planting and harvesting and doing all those sorts of things. It's a continuum, and I've never quite been sure that the argument that there are places that are managed in some sense actually applies to all of our wilderness areas. For example, they're not managed in the sense that your back garden is. And I sometimes wonder about whether that logic really helps us to make better decisions. I'm Sarah Beck, back with Adrian St. Clair. Adrian, that was a really interesting conversation. Such a tough topic. I feel really conflicted about it, and I think that he portrays that difficulty really well in his discussion. Tell me a little bit more about why there's a feeling of inner conflict when confronting this, especially from an ecologist's perspective. There's this feeling of urgency that we all have when we're discussing this topic. And especially after last year, I live in the Pacific Northwest in the Willamette Valley of Oregon. And we had what I can only describe as a very traumatic wildfire season last year. It came very close to urban areas and a lot of people's consciousness. And so there's this sense of knowing that there's imminent danger, that we need to do something about it and not having the right answer for it. And I think that that was really captured in our discussion today. I agree. I experienced a little of what you're talking about as well, being on the central coast of California and being under threat of evacuation a couple of times last year as well. His idea of having this transitional landscape from human habitation to transitional spaces and then into forest is incredibly compelling. And I think it really speaks to that part of us that wants to be 
part of the ecosystem as well, not have this fight against people in nature and understanding that people are part of nature and how do we have those environments that we want to live within in a safe way and be able to share that space with the forest that we also adore and love. I agree. We all as humans love to be near nature. We love to feel like we're connected to the coast or to be connected to the forest. And if that design solution can allow us to transition between those spaces in that wildland urban interface, I think it's an amazing promise, you know, for the for the future and and thinking about planning that way, it's really inspiring. It is. He also had some pretty solid infrastructure solutions That's as right. well. It's combining those two answers of the infrastructure and the design elements. That'll probably be the answer that we we find most successful. And I think that's where that new technology and cutting edge research gets very relevant in this conversation. Because when we start talking about materials that can be more resilient and non-toxic and appropriate, I think there's a lot there. I totally agree. Yeah. And... That's why we're Garden Futurists. Lots to look forward to. That's right. We do. Thanks so much, Adrian. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. Thanks for joining us today. If you liked Garden Futurist and would like to hear more episodes or want more climate-resilient gardening techniques, find us at pacifichorticulture.org.